Hi there, folks, and welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Property Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima again. Great to have you with us today, or back with us, to those among you who are regular listeners. Now, for today's episode, we're going to actually take a break again from our usual real estate and business-related banter and go off-topic a bit, although not that far off-topic, to be honest, because we're going to dive into a much-debated issue that, for many people, uh, self-included, actually lies at the root of one of Japan's biggest challenges as far as economic growth is concerned. Now, we've briefly touched upon this on many occasions in the past uh, here on the podcast, and today we're going to try and take a bigger swing at this topic, which is gender relations. And when we try and tackle the issues holding Japan back, one which does come up again and again is the rapidly aging population. And a lot of that is due to the reluctance to increase immigration, for one, but also due to the sharp decline in birth rates here over the last few decades. And while this decline can be attributed to quite a few factors, one of the main ones uh, tends to be the lack of female satisfaction in general, which in turn may lead to an ever-increasing lack of interest in forming lasting relationships, or at least the type of um, heterosexual male-female relationships which tend to lead to a significant number of babies, natural births, and as a result, to a natural increase in the population. So a bit behind schedule, because we've uh, just missed Valentine's Day by a couple of weeks, we're actually going to talk about love with a capital L, modern love to be exact. And to take on this issue, we're joined once again by our favorite regular guest for these types of broader social and international relation types discussions, Mr. Duncan Bartlett, former BBC correspondent and author of the Japan Story blog, which focuses mainly on how Japan is seen by international media. Uh, Duncan, if you may recall, also writes regularly for the uh, Sanke newspaper, and he is the editor of Asian Affairs magazine. Duncan, thanks so much for joining us again today. Pleasure to have you back on the show. Good to be back, Jim. Um, so, to dive right into it, in your experience, what does modern love look like in Japan? A um, good place to start is maybe with um, popular culture depictions like uh, Japanese films, TV programs. You, you watch a lot of Japanese movies. What stands out for you about the way that relationships are, are portrayed here? Well, normally when I say that I'm a big fan of Japanese movies, people immediately assume I'm talking about anime and science fiction. Actually, to be honest, I'm not really into all that stuff. My favorite types of Japanese film are dramas, and they're often based on believable social situations. I saw a brilliant one the other day with a wonderful title, Her Love Boils Like Glass Water. <laughs> uh, it's got a good name in Japanese, too. You hodo no atsui What is The story is this, that a, a young single mother finds that she's suffering from terminal cancer. So this prompts her to reunite with the father of her children and also to open a onsen, a public bath. And that's why it's got that unusual title. Her love for her kids is like hot steam rising up the chimney. And by contrast... The key male figures in the film are portrayed as being more or less incapable of loving, certainly finding it a big struggle to build supportive relationship with their families. They're rather juvenile, they're irresponsible, they're feckless. Now, as you said, I see a lot of these kind of Japanese dramas, and I've noticed that I very rarely see ones which show men and women in successful partnerships. Relationships always seem to be a mess, and the blame, I'm afraid, 
seems to be placed very squarely on the men, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, I mean, that is fairly typical. I mean, aside from, from love stories and romances, there are also a lot of other dramas around, and they tend to focus um, a lot on the difficulty of finding a lasting relationship with that right person. Um, but perhaps even more interestingly, we've got documentaries and news programs, so, so stuff from the real world, and a lot of that, especially in recent days, has been highlighting powerful men accused of taking advantage of their status to keep women in subservient roles. Um, just two recent examples. Uh, each year since 2010, Tokyo Medical University, a very prevalent institution in Japan, uh, apparently has fraudulently lowered the scores of female applicants who have been taking the annual entrance exam, and they've been keeping the percentage of young women admitted at about 30% intentionally. And in another more recent case, um, a young Japanese idol, uh, a pop star, a uh, member of a girl's group who was assaulted by two men at her home, and she was actually forced to apologize for, for causing trouble in a very uh, typical Japanese manner. Now, not to make light of both these cases and others like them, I do think the fact that they've attracted so much anger, and rightfully so, from so many large sectors of the public here in Japan, that would definitely be pointing to changing times here as well, wouldn't you say? I mean... Face it, this probably wouldn't have even made the news here as recently as a decade or so ago. So, I see a parallel with the fictional films here. There is a great deal of interest in the dynamics of the relationships between men and women. If you're pitching an idea for a film, you're more likely to get funding if you tell a story which reinforces this current narrative about men struggling to bond successfully with women, strong women asserting themselves despite the odds stacked up against them. And this comes across in contemporary Japanese cinema, and it's also, as you say, right there in the media, on television, in newspapers, and especially in the weekly magazines. Those magazines often pick up on allegations of sexual misconduct by powerful men, and they can ruin somebody's reputation and career. Respectable people say they're just full of gossip, they don't read them, but the magazines influence the whole media agenda, so they have power. It all reflects anxiety about men's role in society. Is it a moral panic? Is there a fear in Japan that men's evil streak, particularly their sexual appetite, threatens the well-being of society? Well, I mean, to, to be fair, it's, they wouldn't be the only ones here in Japan. It's also, um, I would imagine it's also true that in Hollywood, um, the path of true love rarely runs smooth, does it? I mean, surely the conflict is what makes the story interesting. Well, I think it's very appropriate to mention Hollywood here because look at how the Me Too movement is affecting the film industry in the United States. The goal of Me Too was for women to speak publicly about the way they've been affected by male exploitation, especially by powerful men. And we saw some of those themes coming through in the films which received prizes at the Oscars. And there's also quite a lot of explicit demands for gender equality and more diversity. Although I think it is worth noting that none of the female directors who were nominated, uh, none of the directors who were nominated for an Oscar this year were women. Now, I know that the Hollywood film scene is very different from the film industry in Japan. But what I'm picking up from recent dramas is a lot of stories showing how women are mistreated and exploited by men. So you're saying that Japanese women come across on film as, what, being weak and submissive? Well, actually, I think it's quite the opposite most of the time. Um, there are many strong female characters. I just mentioned her love boils like bathwater. 
And the star of that is Rie Miyazawa, who's brilliant at portraying sophisticated, strong female characters. So in Japanese films, you quite often see moving representations of sisterhood, solidarity, and sometimes there are quite touching portrayals of mother-daughter relationships. Of course, I'm generalizing here, but in recent Japanese drama, it often strikes me that although the women may be the underdogs in terms of professional success, or even perhaps in terms of romantic relationships, they're the ones with the more fulfilled lives. They're the ones living with more authenticity than the men. I think they're more in touch with their emotions. Okay, well, let's talk about how this plays out internationally then. For the past few months, this whole complicated and very painful issue of comfort women, or put more bluntly, forced sexual servitude, in which uh, Korean and other women have been forced into prostitution to serve Japanese military personnel uh, back in World War II. Now, that topic is back in the news again. Lots of attention to the uh, treatment of the Korean by the Japanese occupying army. Is that all about gender as well, do you think? I think it's part of it. Look at what happened recently with the big anti-Japanese protests in South Korea. Campaigners there were drawing parallels between the comfort women issue and the current debate about exploitation highlighted by the Me Too movement. They say that the mistreatment of vulnerable women needs to be publicly challenged, whether it occurred in the last century or it's still happening today. The tactic is to publicly shame men for their misdeeds. Now, in Korea, this often leads to a rhetoric which portrays Japanese men as unpleasant aggressors. So in the minds of many Koreans, there's little distinction between the actions of the wartime enemy and contemporary Japanese politicians who are predominantly male. My view, based on talking to young South Korean women, is that often frustrations about gender inequality in South Korea also seep into the picture. And this seems to be fueling an anger which leads to that tension and confrontation which we've seen recently. Okay, so again, not really isolated to Japan. So, okay, what about the um, debate that we've got now with the uh, Japanese emperor? Um, should he apologize for these uh, past wrongs? What do you make of that? Well, that's what a leading politician in South Korea is demanding. And I can sort of see the logic, actually. From the South Korean perspective, the emperor takes his legitimacy from being part of a long, unbroken line of secession, which dates back many centuries. His father was worshipped as a god, and it was in that context that Japan invaded Korea. So how could that not cause anger and resentment? Having said that, Japan, of course, insists that it has legally settled all the claims relating to the war and the occupation, including the comfort women issue. And it says that these were sorted out many years ago. So the official view was outlined in a letter which I read in the New York Times just recently. Uh, and I've got it here. It says, Japan has extended its sincere apologies and remorse to the former comfort women on many occasions. And Japan has made an effort to recover the honor and dignity and heal the psychological wounds of the former comfort women. Would it be a different situation, you think, if Japan actually had an empress rather than an emperor or a female prime minister? Do you think that's even possible here? Well, it's interesting you mentioned the prime minister because, as I explained, this whole issue has become very political, hasn't it? Um, and the issue in Korea has risen to prominence since President Moon Jae-in took office in 2017. It seems to me that he's discovered that by showing sympathy with the survivors of the Japanese occupation, that boosts his popularity, particularly among the nationalists. Many people in Japan, I'm sure, would like this issue to go away. 
like the government, they acknowledge past mistakes, but they feel that little can be achieved by going through further debate, especially in a heated media environment. Um, however, some hardcore of supporters of uh, Prime Minister Abe believe that Japan has been the subject of, well, unwarranted criticism, and that going soft on South Korea would make their country appear vulnerable. I think my view is this. Japan is hyper-aware of the problems created in contemporary society by male exploitation. It's a moral panic within Japan. We shouldn't be surprised when this spreads to South Korea and when issues about the way in which men behave towards women are under discussion. Well, perhaps a right, a rightful um, moral panic within Japan. I mean, we, we definitely, again, to, to touch on the topic that I've sort of introduced this with, we could definitely see um, a big economic improvement, I think, if women were simply just more included in the workplace, not even uh, going as far as the decision-making process, which is another topic, but just to include them in the workforce would definitely um, give a much-needed boost, I'd say, to GDP growth here. Okay, so... Again, internationally, this week is International Women's Day. Um, lots of stories in the magazines about the inspirational women in Japan. Um, who for you is an inspiring woman that you've met, inspiring Japanese woman that you've met? Oh, well, for that, I'd have to introduce you to my wife, Yuka. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I believe you're also married to a Japanese lady, aren't you? I am, and quite an inspirational one herself, too. <laughs> well, aside from Yuka... Um, I think the other person that I've been particularly admiring recently is the most famous Japanese woman in the world. And that, that would be? Marie Kondo. Ah, she is, isn't she? She's taken the world over by storm. <laughs> yes, the tidying up guru. I've been watching her series on Netflix uh, in which she goes into American homes and advises families on how to clear up their clutter. It is compelling. If you're interested in anything to do with Japan, I recommend that you have a look at some of those programs because the way in which the Japanese uh, girl or lady interacts with the Americans and the way they find their way through cultural differences uh, to mutual benefit is absolutely amazing. I have to admit I haven't even uh, watched a single episode of that, but I'll definitely get down to it. Okay, now, um, before we finish, maybe... Uh, briefly, um, LGBT issues. There's an ongoing debate about um, gay marriage in Japan. We've got 11 cities and city wards that now do issue same-sex partnership certificates, which do provide some benefits, um, but these are mostly symbolic. And this is in spite of the fact that uh, since 2013, most polls have actually determined the majority of Japanese do support marriage rights for the community. So do you think the country is maybe behind the curve on this one too? Is it maybe time to show a bit more legal recognition to same-sex relationships and maybe even to change the constitution and allow this here? Well, so let me say at the outset that I'm a supporter of marriage equality uh, and I often spend time with gay people who are married. I know that in Japan some gay and lesbian couples have held wedding ceremonies um, and as you say, local governments have offered legal recognition to same-sex partnerships in, in some places, that's not quite the same thing as le legally recognised marriage. Some people are trying to use the courts to change the situation. Um, five lesbian and eight gay couples filed lawsuits across Japan last month. They're looking at um, taking some damages, about a million yen each, uh, for each person who they say has been denied legal rights um, 
the same legal rights that heterosexual couples enjoy. And this is where we get into the complex issue of what Japan's constitution says about marriage. It says that marriage should only be with the mutual consent of both sexes. And the government says this means that same-sex marriage is unconstitutional. Well, I raised this point the other day with a film director called Hikaru Toda, who's made a very interesting documentary called Of Love and Law. It's about two openly gay lawyers, Kazuki Fumi from Osaka, who are campaigning for legal recognition for their own marriage and for the marriage of their clients. And I asked Toda-san if Kazuki Fumi believed that constitutional change is required before gay marriage is legalized. And she replied, that's not their opinion. She said that many constitutional experts agree with them. The idea is that the constitution can be interpreted in a new way rather than being rewritten. Now, clearly constitutional change involves a lot of argument, protest, both of which make the Japanese feel uncomfortable. Social change in Japan usually occurs when there's a general agreement about the best way forward. It therefore makes sense that the lawyers who want to change the status of marriage are seeking to avoid unnecessary confrontation. And given that social attitudes towards homosexuality are rapidly changing, particularly among young people, I expect they'll find widespread support for their idea within a generation. Oh, here's hoping. I'm definitely with you on the support front there, by the way. Um, and as well for um, gender equality generally in Japan, it would be great to see um, more women in leadership roles, uh, in political roles, and just out of the house in general, if they want to, of course. All right, well, th thanks very much for your time today, Duncan. It was a pleasure having you on the show, as always. Good to speak to you again, Zip. Um, folks, that's probably about it from us today. Hope you've enjoyed this uh, slight detour we've taken on this episode. Please do share it with your networks or anyone that you think may find it interesting. We're going to link again to Duncan's Japan Story blog and the Asian Affairs magazine in the show notes uh, on Podigy, where the podcast is originally hosted. Do feel free to join the discussion by leaving us a comment, a question, request for future episodes, content, uh, wherever you might have found us. And above all, it would really mean the world to us if you could leave us a rating or a review on the iTunes store or the podcast directory. Helps us reach more, more and more people who may benefit from the content. Tell us what you think. Helps us improve as well. And we've started getting your questions in for the Q&A sessions. Uh, we could still use a lot more of those. So please, short audio or short video with any question related to um, real estate, economy, or anything to do with Japan. We might be dunking uh, up again to answer those. Hope to have you with us next time, and we're going to be back to our old selves then, talk a little bit more about Japanese real estate as usual. And until then, from all of us here at NTI and the Japan Story blog, we wish you a great day or evening, depending on where in the world you're tuning in from. And as always, happy investing.